are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ and glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening on page 162, if you're following along in the blue hardback version. And uh, we are on uh, saying number 10, about halfway down the page. And uh, this is the, the step on sleep and disciplining it as uh, another kind of appetite that we have as human beings. And so, so uh, establishing a kind of bodily vigilance in order to help create uh, what John calls uh, spiritual vigilance or alertness. So our ordering our sleep uh, has a kind of impact upon us of making us more alert in terms of what's going on within the mind and the heart in a similar way that fasting does. There's a humbling of the body that takes place. Uh, and in that, though, there's a heightening of our ability to perceive what's going on internally and around us, the kind of temptations that would afflict us. And uh, after this, we'll be moving on to step 21, which is on cowardice, or as John says, unmanly fear. And so again, we're on number 10. The farmer's wealth is gathered on the threshing floor and in the wine press, but the wealth and knowledge of monks is gathered during the evenings and the night hours while standing at prayer and engaged in spiritual activity. So in the world around us, that the, the fruit of one's labors comes typically during the daylight hours, that one's labor uh, it takes uh, place during the day. And he uses the image here of a farmer. But uh, for the monk, uh, the one who's seeking to be much more attentive to what's going on within the mind and the heart, the, the greatest hours for his work, for his prayer would be in the evening and, and at night when things become very quiet externally. And uh, even uh, in terms of the sounds of the day or the animals around, the birds around, everything becomes very, very silent. And the, the darkness of the night as well helps to uh, create a more contemplative, uh, if you will, kind of atmosphere. And so these become the prized hours when a monk would pray. And it's in this also that this kind of humbling of the body takes place 
Uh, often they would stand whole nights in prayer or at, uh, at least for most of it, giving themselves perhaps a few hours uh, of rest, uh, whatever the body would need. Uh, but they would seek to make the most of these night hours. Number 11, long sleep is an unjust comrade. It robs the lazy of half their life and even more. So an unjust comrade, it's an interesting phrase that a friend, you know, something that uh, offers its support to us and that in some way we need a comrade that helps to aid the, the body in restoring itself and even helps us engage in the ascetic life. But an unjust comrade, it also seek to take uh, much of our waking hours away from us, especially if we do not order it. And so a person could literally sleep half of their life away uh, if they don't order their sleep at all. And, uh, and so once again, you know, this is part of the reason for uh, beginning to gradually limit it to what is needed or even a little less, again, in order to humble, humble the body and keep this appetite in order. The inexperienced monk is wide awake in friendly conversation, but his eyes become heavy when the hour of prayer is upon him. And so it's kind of an interesting thing that happens to us spiritually as well as psychologically. When others are around or there's some kind of interesting conversation that pops up, all of a sudden our interest is, is uh, activated and we become very engaged in the conversation. But the moment that we have the silence, that we are often dropping off, can barely keep our eyelids open. And part of this, as we've talked about in the past, can be due to the, the natural needs of the body, over, over fatigue from work or for, from fasting that is too lengthy. But often there is a kind of both psychological and spiritual resistance to the vulnerability of prayer that we might seek to uh, escape from opening ourselves to God in this kind, kind of way and not taking hold of our time and controlling it in the way that we would desire or that we would see as productive or useful. Uh, one might describe you know, prayer as a kind of holy wasting of time. We aren't engaging in it to produce something, but rather to uh, direct our love and our devotion to God in an undistracted fashion. And to open our minds and our hearts to him as radically as we can in order that we might be healed uh, of the sin that afflicts us. And, uh, and so there are ways that we need to strive uh, to overcome that tendency. Uh, and I think this is why we see, especially among the Eastern fathers and Eastern Christians, the, the use of the body in prayer and emphasis on that, uh, not only fasting, uh, but standing during one's prayer or standing in a posture with one's arms outstretched or stretched up to heaven, uh, making prostrations at various times of one's prayer, making the sign of the cross, all of these ways that we involve more of the self in order that we might keep our attention focused upon God. And some of that is also to keep us awake. Um, 
Also, even something like the use of the chotki or the prayer rope, uh, running the knots through one's fingers adds a kind of bodily element uh, that we might stay focused on the prayer that we are saying and seeking to say it with much, as much love and devotion as possible. The same is true certainly with the rosary beads. Uh, they have that same effect that not only of uh, being attentive to the number of the Hail Marys that one is saying, uh, but also to keep one's focus uh, on, on God and on the prayer itself. Uh, the prayers actually began with the monks using things like rocks and throwing them into a basket, uh, again, to uh, not so much to count the number of their prayers as, as it was to maintain their, their focus. Uh, I've often mentioned Philip Neary uh, because of his love of the Eastern Fathers, but often in the catacombs of Rome, one of the ways that he at night he would keep himself awake would simply be tying and untying a, a, a knot in a rope, uh, making use of his hands as he prayed uh, to maintain that kind of focus. So uh, again, not so much to count uh, the prayers that we are doing, but to aid us in that focus. Number 13, the lazy monk is experienced in loquaciousness, but when the hour of prayer arrives, he cannot keep his eyes open. At the sound of the trumpet, the dead will rise. And when the idle talk is afoot, those who were asleep come too. <laughs> I love uh, John's writings. And so the one who's loquacious, so the one who's talkative has that same problem then when prayer, or, or, or the time for prayer arrives. Suddenly he's tempted to drift off, to fall asleep. I uh, can't for, you know, any of his efforts seem to keep his eyes open, no matter how hard he strives. And the, the demons, I think, are a part of this. Uh, but again, there can be a, a also, a, as I mentioned, a kind of resistance. And it seems like a funny thing to say that, uh, that we might resist engaging in a deeper kind of prayer uh, as we become vulnerable to God, as we open ourselves to him in the light of, of his grace, the light of his truth, to allow that to penetrate our hearts. There are things that we even hide from ourselves that aren't conscious to us uh, in regards to our desires or even uh, past practices and behaviors that make us uh, want to avoid something such as prayer. Uh, to stretch one's arms out in imitation of the Lord is to open oneself in a kind of vulnerable fashion. And this is what's taking place, an opening of the mind and the heart, seeking to hide nothing from him. And so often prayer does not come easily to us. There is this false notion, I think, at times that if our faith is real, that prayer should come almost spontaneously and that it should always be joyful for us or easy to do, uh, whereas the opposite is true most of the time. Uh, the fathers again and again say that the discipline of prayer is something that we more often than not have to force ourselves to do. Uh, in order to, to establish the habit of prayer. Uh, 
and uh, to also establish the habit we, where we are uh, creating a kind of simplicity of life and silence, external silence that allows an in internal silence to begin to emerge. It's often very difficult, as you've probably experienced many times before, when we, if we are coming to mass or divine liturgy or to our prayer right after work or engaging in conversations with others, it can take a while to still the mind and the heart uh, and uh, allow our attention to gradually focus upon God alone. And this is why often having periods where we extend the time of our prayer can be very important in, in that regard, to allow that prayer to go beyond the hour. Usually it takes an hour really to still the heart. And I think once we go beyond that, then our capacity to remain focused can grow and that can have an impact upon us in our day-to-day uh, -day prayer throughout the rest of the week. Again, if we take uh, these mini retreats for ourselves, if you will, uh, for the monks, you know, that mini retreat was pretty much on a daily basis. They would just stay up for a good portion of the night in the same way that they would fast on a daily basis, uh, just to a certain limited extent, not to the point of harming themselves physically. He goes on to say, the tyrant sleep sleep is a crafty friend when we are full of food it often leaves us but in hunger and thirst it attacks us vigorously and so oddly enough uh, he says it can be very crafty here where we when we are full of food it, at first uh, it often leaves us uh, this sleep, which seems counterintuitive. It's typically when one is in the process of digesting that we tend to fall asleep. But the craftiness of the evil one is to, to create this sense within us uh, that we need to keep up our energy and not to fast so rigorously. And so if we're going to be able to persevere in prayer, we need to make sure that we are well fed. And, uh, and then uh, in the opposite way, it'll vigorously attack us when we have been fasting. And part of this is to dissuade us from both things, from, from the prayer, but the practice of fasting, which deepens our prayer and strengthens it. Uh, it's often before we break the fast uh, that the prayer becomes the deepest. And so you can see why the evil one would want to create this kind of experience for us or the illusion that uh, we, we pray better when we're eating uh, uh, a more normal diet, when we aren't fasting as rigorously, uh, when the opposite eventually is what, is, is what shows itself to be true. Number 15. It suggests that we should do hard work, I'm sorry, handwork during our prayers, for it cannot otherwise foil the prayers of the vigilant. And so, in some ways, now I, I mentioned the use of stones and even Philip Neary tying and untying a knot. That's different than handwork. 
there can be a suggestion that is put before a monk in particular would be engaged in a kind of handwork. Often they would make things in order to sell at the market to provide for their basic needs. And so the temptation would be to engage in that kind of labor uh, rather than allowing them to fully embrace those periods of undistracted prayer. And the same thing, same thing can come to us, come to our minds, that uh, to try to be doing two things at one time, to be engaging in some work or have our attention split in the time of prayer. Uh, and uh, for us, this can be rather insidious. I mean, checking emails and all kinds of different things uh, during the, the time of prayer uh, or writing uh, something down or, or or whatever it might be uh, but uh, and so it's not just keeping our focus that he's warning us against but it's trying again to engage in prayer with this sort of fragmented mind and heart marine writes did they recite the psalms as prayer uh, absolutely in fact the psalms and the scriptures as a whole uh, were, were their spiritual reading uh, to the point that many of the monks had the entire New Testament memorized as well as the Psalms. And there are some uh, monks that would say the entire Psal Psalter in a day. And uh, so the Psalms were very much at the heart the, and the scriptures as a whole at the heart of their spiritual life and also at the heart of their prayer. Uh, uh, but they would also have these periods where certainly they would have uh, uh, deep silence. And uh, again, this would typically be at night when things were most quiet, where they could direct that attention to God uh, just uh, purely without any kind of mediation, if you will. The first enters into conflict with beginners in order to make them negligent from the very outset or to prepare the way for the demon of fornication. And so the, the, the first uh, temptation then is to, again, to dissipate a person, to fragment their attention. Because once the mind can be split and distracted, even with benign things or things that seem to be godly, to be thinking about things that need to be done, even in terms of ministry or the church or in community, that uh, once that distractedness uh, is established, then the, the thoughts can be drawn in ways uh, that are more directly sinful. Uh, it's uh, remember, I think for the, the desert fathers, the, 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 the struggle, the spiritual battle was primarily psychological, but also rooted in the, in the thoughts, the logismoi. And we talked about the thousands of thoughts that we have throughout the, the course of, of the day. And so this is where the battle is fought. And, and they would often see the, allowing of one's thoughts to wander or to be directed towards something else in prayer as adultery or idolatry, that one is taking one's focus off of God, 
that the, when worship is to be taking place, devotion, love is to be directed toward God, we are directing it to something, someone else. And so it seems like a strange notion in our mind that daydreaming or just letting our thoughts go where they will uh, was seen by the fathers as adultery, as an infidelity to God, that part of our fidelity to God and to love of God is not allowing ourselves to daydream, but to draw our minds and our thoughts back to him, uh, that we, again, might be able to see all that we do in and through the lens of that relationship and that love. And it's when we take our minds off of him, we can become absorbed. Our minds can become captivated, taken captive by our thoughts instead of the other way around. St. Paul says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We often allow things to go in the opposite direction. We allow our minds, our thoughts, imaginations to become captivated by the things that we see, think, and uh, we can reach a point where we lose sight of God for hours on end, perhaps a whole day. And uh, this is where we have to be careful. I think, uh, again, I don't want to be strident in this or to demonize anything, but our use of the internet and television and, uh, and even our work at times, we can allow these things to take hold of our minds in such a way that we become completely focused on them to the exclusion of God. And when that happens, uh, faith diminishes, if not uh, is destroyed altogether. What we are really worshiping is ourself. Uh, the things that we think are of importance or great value in our in our life, rather than, again, allowing them to be shaped in and through that relationship. Now, there are certain kinds of work, of course, that require a great deal of attention and focus uh, on others or on the task at hand. And uh, this requires from us, I think, uh, an even greater kind of discipline that regularly we are uh, stop pausing in our work uh, or even in the midst of it, using this, something like the Jesus prayer to turn the mind and the heart to him and then back to what, what we are doing. Uh, it's for this reason that monks would often choose to do a more manual kind of labor where uh, they did not have to, they could engage in a work that became almost automatic for them. Uh, like the making of mats or, or certain things, again, that they would sell on the market, uh, where they would not have to be so intensely focused, but could pray constantly during, during that labor. And uh, in our time, I think there often is this need to be focused upon the computer, or there is a lot of conversation that takes place. And so it requires us I think those living in the world uh, to, to begin to train ourselves very early on and to create this habit of mind so that in the midst of our labors, 
that the heart has been so deeply formed that this movement between the self and the God and God is taking place even when our surface level of attention is directed toward the task at hand. But that only comes about when we've immersed ourselves so deeply in this prayer, again, that we've become it and that it has become like our breathing. Uh, and, but until that point, we, we need to be very uh, guarded and uh, working hard to establish this discipline. And so, again, that means, I think, in our day-to-day -day life, uh, fostering simplicity, uh, taking hold of silent moments as much as we can. We talked once here about when we get in the car, not turning on the radio but to allow ourselves simply to be in silence or not to turn the television on first thing in the morning, to allow ourselves to linger in the silence as, as long as we can until uh, we begin to have a taste for it, desire it, love it, and have, don't have that need to distract ourselves. I think we can reach this point where we, we almost need to have the television on uh, in order to feel comfortable at peace, that it creates a kind of white noise for people. So even if they aren't watching the television, there can be multiple televisions on in a house. Uh, so it's sort of a curious thing. And, uh, but it can have this effect upon us where I think it is creating this level of distraction. And so for most of us, I think it requires this kind of conscious decision to turn things off, or even to get rid of television altogether, depending on how deep uh, that habit has become. I'll just pause here. Anybody have any thoughts so far on what John has said? Okay. Number 16, I'm not sorry, number 17. Not until we are freed from this should we beg to be excused from common worship, for often shame keeps us from dozing. The hound is the enemy of the hares, and the demon of vainglory is the enemy of sleep. So isn't this interesting? John is using something that is a passion in and of itself to fight another passion. So vainglory... The, when we are involved in common worship can be something that makes a person stay awake because they don't want to have people see their head bobbing while they're at liturgy. And uh, so they'll fight harder to stay attentive. And, uh, and so using this kind of shame, he says, to keep us from, from dozing. And uh, it's a very interesting thought. And he's one of the few fathers that describes things in this kind of way, but he acknowledges that sometimes we have to fight one battle at a time, and we'll use the means that are available to us, and certainly vainglory isn't the highest, uh, you know, <laughs> highest uh, means to overcome sleep. But hey, if it's what works at that moment, if that little bit of shame keeps us from dozing off, then, then so be it, he says. When the day is over, 
the vendor sits down and counts his profits, but the ascetic does so when the psalmody is over. So, you know, in a worldly kind of way, we see, again see our, our, our profits by what our work produces, and in particular, the money that we are paid. Whereas the monk looks for the spiritual fruit that is produced from constantly engaging in prayer or the praying here, as John mentions, mentions the psalmody, that this intense focus upon the word of God and allowing that to be something that is written upon the heart, again, memorized, allowing it to speak to the heart in such a way that it fosters, say, a spirit of repentance. This is the fruit. These are the things that the monk would be counting up. You know, what, what has God said to me or what God, what has this prayer produced in my soul? Is it producing a fruit that will endure unto eternity? A greater desire for God, a greater spirit of humility, a greater spirit of repentance. That's, these are the things that we would look for at the end of the day. So in our kind of examine of conscience, conscience, at the end of the day, I think part of what we're looking for as well is our responsiveness uh, to God and then the call to prayer, how we've entered into that prayer. You know, have we done so with zeal and attention, love and desire for God? Or have we allowed ourselves to be dis distracted? Have we done it simply uh, to get through it or quickly, fulfilling it as a task? rather than seeking to allow it to form and to shape our hearts. This is where a kind of examination of conscience begins to grow uh, very deep, where it's more than, again, a kind of moralizing or a legalistic view of looking for particular acts. I think as one moves into the spiritual life in a deeper way, what we begin to see are these subtle movements of, of the heart towards laziness or inattentiveness of being distracted, of not really giving ourselves over and love to God. Uh, there are two things that I would suggest reading uh, in regards to this kind of exam examination of conscience. And it would be uh, one that's found in the way of the pilgrim or it might be in the Pilgrim Continues His Way, sort of the follow-up to that. I just posted it a day or so ago uh, on social media, uh, uh, but it's beautiful and uh, very deep. And I think it pulls us away uh, from a, a kind of examination of conscience that is, is at times very limited or, or focused only on obvious acts rather than what's going on in our minds and our hearts or whether or not we've loved God or others or that love has been made manifest in prayer. The second one uh, is called the ascetic heart. And uh, Ren, is it on the website at this point? Not, not yet. Okay. Yeah. It's one that we'll put on uh, along with suggested reading list or along with other documents. Uh, Ron and I are going to do a little recording of it too because it's a it's uh, a sort of in this form of again a colloquy, a dialogue between a father and the son, 
the son asks, Father, why do you fast? And the father goes through all the reasons why he engages in, in this practice, what he's seeking to produce within the heart. And it's one of the most beautiful reflections. Uh, it's uh, long, but not so long that one couldn't do it within a day. In fact, I know certain individuals who pray, who pray and read the entire thing every single day. Uh, because they've been so taken by it and it's borne such fruit for them. So I don't know if it's really called the ascetic heart. That might have been something that I made up as a title. Is it yeah. called? Mm -hmm. It is called that. Okay. So the ascetic heart. But I don't think we know the author. I think that is anonymous. Okay. So this is superb. Uh, Louise writes, television induces a trance in most people. Abs absolutely. I think it does something to the mind. And this is where, where again, we have to think things through uh, in regards to our use of technology. Computers, uh, too, do the same thing, uh, precisely because they provide us with what television does, but almost in a with greater power and uh, greater effect upon us. But uh, we've mentioned before some studies showing that our brain activity uh, really almost is reduced to nothing. It's like looking at a, we have more brain activity when we're looking at a blank wall than when we are watching a television show or a movie. And so, you know, we often, and we know it in, in, intuitively, instinctively, because we'll say, I'm going to veg out. I just want to veg out. I'm so tired. So I want to make myself a vegetable, basically, for a couple of hours and sit here and do nothing and think about nothing. And basically, that's what happens. And even the media sort of picks up on it as well in, in another fashion when now that you can watch a series altogether, they'll, they'll, they refer to it as binge watching that you in a sort of gluttonous way will sit down and watch like two seasons of episodes from a series. And uh, so it's not like television used to be where you'd have to wait, you know, a week for another episode of a show. And then, you know, once the season was over, you'd have to wait until the next year. Now people can sit down and watch six seasons, seven seasons of a series in a weekend. And so you think about that, it's like vegging out for an, an entire weekend uh, where one becomes almost oblivious. Uh, another feature of watching television is that we become what we contemplate, right? You know, I think it's rather than gazing at Christ in the tabernacle or the monstrance, the television becomes our monstrance. It's what we worship and we become as you said, what we contemplate, what we are gazing upon. And so we enter into this virtual reality, uh, uh, something that is made up, a fantasy of other people's lives whose lives aren't even real. These are all just, these are all stories. And so we get drawn into them. Uh, again, often, uh, and we can make this sort of innocent in our own minds as a way of just relaxation. And John will talk about this at some point where, but it's relaxation in a way that is not really renewing 
to us or doesn't recreate uh, what needs to be recreated within within our minds and our hearts. And uh, and so when we engage uh, in this, it can be completely destructive uh, to the spiritual life and the life of prayer. In fact, Thomas Merton said that, I don't know, must be 50 years ago now that, you know, he certainly had watched very little over the course of his life, but felt that it was the destroyer of contemplation, which seems is a pretty a strong statement, but I think he's not too far off the mark as far as it goes. Because it agitates, and we've talked about that before too, rather than creating the peace of Christ that prayer offers, the consolation that prayer offers, TV often leaves us with that feeling either of emptiness or agitation. It's junk food. So it either leaves us feeling sick after binging on it, or, you know, that we we feel that we've sort of exhausted ourselves and have not been renewed at all. Again, remember, a starving man has no sense of taste. And so when we are starving for the love of God and have starved ourselves over the course uh, of time, then we are not going to have a sense of taste. That absence is going to seek uh, something to fill it, the void that we fill within us. And we'll start consuming anything, even if it lasts for a very short period of time and has no, as it were, nutritional value for us. Anthony writes, recreation or recreation takes work. And I find it's easy just to watch, but it is agitating. And like Lucy, Charlie Brown and the football, it is a recurrent trap around 10 p.m. <laughs> right. Yeah, this time it'll have an effect or this show is really moving. I've heard everybody's telling me how great it is. And so we uh, are tempted to let Lucy you know, coax us into trying to kick that football again. And then ruthlessly she yanks it out from before us. Okay. Number, where are we? 19. When prayer is finished, wait soberly. And you will see that swarms of demons, as if challenged by us, try to invade us after prayer with absurd fantasies. Sit and watch. And you will see those who are in the habit of snatching away the first fruits of the soul. What a magnificent thought again and bit of counsel uh, because it's often something that is really disconcerting and discombobulating to people uh, that after prayer or after receiving one of the sacraments, especially going, you know, receiving the Holy Eucharist or going to confession, that one can suddenly be attacked by the passions in a vicious kind of way. And so John, this is what John is telling us, that we need to be sober and aware of this and alert and vigilant because immediately after we have responded to this grace of God, 
to call have responded to this call of prayer, the demons are going to seek, seek to disrupt that discipline within us by drawing us into sin as quickly as they can. And so they'll throw everything at us, any kind of fantasy or, or try to draw us into a kind of conflict. I've had people tell me that, you know, that they've been aware or they've had this inkling of needing to be prepared for something, whether it's after mass or after prayer. And then as soon as they leave the church or leave their room, they encounter a conflict with another person or where there would be this temptation to uh, anger or a kind of ferocity of, of speech, or, or somebody will be drawn into uh, lustful thoughts because images will come to mind. Uh, and so the demons, I think, will use this kind of vulnerability of prayer where we're opening our, in fact, our minds and our hearts to the spirit of God. That, you know, if what we have to do is to hold that precious, but also to guard our hearts in order that we do not then open them to another spirit or any number of spirits that would willingly enter in and uh, make our uh, state even worse. You remember the story from the gospel of the person who cast out a demon and then sweeps the house clean and then seven other demons come back and the first, the last state is worse than the first. And so the same thing can happen to us in the spiritual life, that we do not guard and hold what is precious, what God has given to us or what he's produced within the heart through our prayer or through the gifts that he's given to us through the Eucharist or through the other sacraments. And because we aren't vigilant, we can be drawn into something that really throws us into despondency. Because the shame that often overcomes the soul that falls into a concrete sin after something like prayer or receiving the sacraments can be devastating. And a person will think, well, why do I even bother? Or, or I'll just wait and I'm not going to go back to confession again because it'll just be too humiliating to go back you know, after having just gone to say that I've fallen again, or since I've already fallen, I might as well just give myself over to that passion because I'm going to have to go to confession again. Our mind begins to, uh, you know, work in all different kinds of ways uh, when we find it darkened, even in the slightest way, by, by sin. And the evil one will become our accuser. He'll take that shame and he'll say to us, how could you? Whereas prior to it, he's saying, come on, God is merciful. You know, this is a small thing. He's not going to care about it. And then immediately after we're drawn into the sin, he becomes our greatest accuser. How could you? You weakling or, you know, how could you turn against God so quickly? What's the value of your prayer? or going to the sacrament. These are all things that we have to be prepared to face. And it's important to know so that we don't become discouraged. I think when we find ourselves embattled, it actually means that something good 
can be happening as well. That, you know, it is only those who war that are warred against. When we go to war spiritually, the evil one is going to war against us as well as well and try to strike us down. And so we want to be aware of this in order that we don't uh, become discouraged by it. A few comments here. I'm sorry I missed you. Uh, Eric, first, this is the general question that's been uh, percolating for a while in my mind as I've been listening to the session. Sometimes the Desert Fathers come across like salvation is so difficult to achieve that it would tempt me to despair if I were to give it credence. Can you comment on their perspective and also what they believe the chances of a layperson was uh, to be saved was? Well, you know, I think the beautiful thing, and I'll address the last first here, is that the, for the fathers, that the gospel was meant for all, and that call to holiness is meant for all, not just for those in black robes, and the spiritual battle that we engage in, the grace that is offered through the sacraments is something that is offered to all. The best and the beautiful is meant for everyone. And so whatever our station in life, we are, are called to take hold of the gifts that God has given to us, to embrace them as fully as we can and live a holy life. It's, the church has talked about this in more recent times as the universal call to holiness, to move away from a kind of clericalism that exists in the church. And clericalism can go in both directions. You know, a, a person who's a cleric, a priest or uh, a monk can think, well, uh, you know, I'm because I'm called to this special life, I deserve a kind of special respect and and to be shown, uh, you know, have a kind of dignity in the eyes of others and uh, rather than should be servant. But there can be this kind of clericalism that goes in the opposite direction to place those who are in that role up on a pedestal. They're the holy ones. They're the ones who lead this spiritual life, this life of prayer, and called to it. So the monks, the nuns, those in monasteries are called to this, not, not me. And, you know, I've, I've heard that over and over again. But what was curious to me when picking up the Philoclea for the first time in the introduction, St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, who's one of the compilers of it, writes this introduction and specifically says, this is not only meant for monks. This is for, meant for everyone who's engaged in the spiritual battle. And, you know, and I've heard as a rationali rationalization, people not want to take up the philokalia for that, that, that reason, you know, that somehow it's only for, you know, those who have the greatest amount of experience uh, or those who are living in the monastery. And, you know, uh, it's true that we don't read indiscriminately. And we want to have guidance and direction, but you know it can also become an excuse, a form of cowardice that prevents us from entering into the fray and fighting the good fight of faith. And every Christian is called to do that, moment to moment, to fight the good fight of faith. So that was the first part of your question. Uh, I think the fathers work very hard, uh, especially in the East, 
to emphasize the, the joy that comes from living the life of virtue and the joy that is produced in the soul from engaging in the spiritual disciplines, because they are not simply disciplines disconnected from their aim, which is intimacy with Christ and deification. And so if we are entering into them fully, one of the fruits that we should experience within our hearts is peace and the joy of Christ, the joy of the kingdom. And, uh, and, um, and so even when we look at something like repentance, they talk about it in a specific way, not uh, as simply shame for one's having fallen, but it's an acknowledgement of our poverty. It's truthful living, living in humility, where we acknowledge our poverty, our need for God's grace, our mercy, not only for forgiveness, but to live the life that he's called us to. And so their view of repentance is also something that leads us toward that which is a person for us, not an abstract notion, an idea, or vision of purity, that is detached from God, but into that very relationship of intimacy with the most holy trinity. And so the rigors of the spiritual life are always spoken about in these relational terms, in terms of love and desire. And this has come up many times in our readings of just about every single father, how much the language of desire is found in all of their text that it is our desire, our longing for God that is to draw us forward. And uh, when we lose sight of this, uh, then I think we can be drawn into despair or into this vision of God as if he is this taskmaster and who's looking then to punish us rather than to bestow his love and mercy upon us, like the father in the story of the prodigal son, who's looking to embrace us and to enfold us in his love. And so, you know, I think our immersion in the readings of, uh, in the writings of the fathers uh, should do these two things, create in us, break down that clericalism, create in us that desire for God and this clarity that we are called to holiness, that our, what we are called to is deification, this radical union and communion with God where we become one with the most holy trinity. We participate in the eternal life and love of God. It's not being good people and it's not the height again of natural virtue. It is to become God by grace. And if that doesn't, you know, I think if we keep that before our minds, that stokes the fire of desire and longing. You know, it is the language of longing. There is a kind of holy eros that Pope Benedict spoke about a good bit, but that we also find in the fathers that drives us on. We see it in the scriptures. If you've ever read the Song of Songs, in particular. The Psalms are sort of like this as well, 
but the Song of Songs in particular is known for it. And this is why the, the great mystics seem to gravitate towards it because the language is so powerfully the language of desire. In fact, John, John of the Cross's writings, Bernard of Clairvaux's writings, you know, in the West, all rooted within the Song of Songs. So these are the things that keep us from that despair. If we allow, I think we have to let go of this, uh, what do they call it when it's sort of a, a caricature of the Desert Fathers. You know, these grim figures, you know, beating themselves, it's, you know, near death in the desert. And, you know, so we have this harsh vision and, you know, admittedly some of their writings does lend itself to that and the rigors of the desert. Uh, but this is where we can't be lazy. We have to engage in this deep reading to see really what is at the heart of even the things that are most challenging. Uh, Cindy Moran, I've worked in broadcast TV for 43 years. It's the last thing I picked for relaxation. Isn't that interesting? I've all, always found it interesting, too, that people like, uh, uh, what was his name, who created Apple? Uh, uh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs and uh, the Microsoft guy and all that. When it comes to, like, children or those around them, that they won't let them what they won't let them use iPads or computers or same thing with like those who are in the film industry. It's not like you know they aren't sitting around watching TV uh, TV or the movies and often won't let their children do that either. And that should sort of tell us something. You know, the, those who are engaged in the very field don't want to expose the, the most vulnerable from their own families to these very very things. Ren Witter writes, who was it who said, I have learned a great deal from television because every time it is put on, I leave the room and read a book. <laughs> I don't remember, but I thought it was a great, great at the time. Uh, oh, Groucho Marx said this. That is, that's very funny. That's great. I'll have to remember that. In fact, Bonnie writes, it can be quite shocking as to how quickly this can occur uh this going into that state yeah almost instantaneous i seem to be especially vulnerable to attacks right after confession including getting stuck behind a slow driver the most annoying thing for a new yorker so i've tried to become very vigilant at that time absolutely you know, road rage takes us there in an instant and it doesn't take long uh, i remember hearing a priest say that a saint is not someone who I'm sorry, I lost it here for a second. Where did that go? It sort of disappeared. Did somebody remove their comment? Maybe somebody did. Scroll up. No, it's there. I, I added and it shifted everything probably. <laughs> <laughs> Where did it go? I lost it. I'm sorry. Ambrose, it's from you then. No, I just made a little comment about the Groucho thing. Okay. No, I, I just I posted it again, Father. So the, the okay. post I just put is it. Oh, it is hard to find a priest. Is that the one? No, the no. one. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm with you right now. I remember hearing a priest say that a saint is not someone who never fell. They just did not make friends with the dirt. 
It is not the falling, but the getting back up over and over again, according to the priest. Right. And again, this is where repentance is real, again, at the heart of their thought, that if we were to rise every single time, it is, again, this act of faith, often an extraordinary act of faith in the mercy of God. And so John Clamacus, in fact, says that if you were to fall every single day and rise every single day through repentance, your guardian angel looks upon you with joy. And if there should be something that keeps us from falling into despair, I think it would be that, you know, this movement of heart back to God immediately gives this hope and brings joy to heaven. It's hard to find a priest confessor who really understands spiritual warfare and dealing with the attacks from demons. The demons zero in on the weakest points, especially in retaliation after times of holiness and grace it can result in deep despondency or anger with a total absence of peace. Um, I think in, in general, that's true. And this disconnect from the spiritual tradition and or we uh, have only sort of fragments of it rather than seeing the clear development over the course of time. And in the sense of this vision of the human person in relation to God. And, uh, and so again, that's, this is one of the reasons I post that quote from Irene Hasher on, on my social media that every renewal within the life of the church begins with the fathers. Again, because they are so rooted in the gospel and what has been revealed to us in Christ, that they become living icons of that. Not only uh, their words do, their writings do, uh, in, in the sense of a commentary on the scriptures, but their lives, more importantly, we, in, in them we see the living gospel. They're living icons of Christ. We see Christ. And, uh, and so I think... You're right, Lawrence, in your, your quote, but I think what it requires from us, again, is that we cannot sit back. We have to fight a kind of malaise or laziness or frustration that leads us to, you know, a kind of inability to move, uh, the paralysis, you know, and we have to fight against that and immerse ourselves uh, in the scriptures, in the sacramental life of the church, and in the writings of the fathers. And, uh, you know, it, it's, I think we've been given the fathers in a special way in our generation, maybe because of the lack that you mentioned, uh, that they've been made so accessible to us. And believe me, if you spend 30 years reading them every day, even if it's a paragraph a, a day, you're going to be nourished upon that and a, in a powerful fashion. Anthony writes, sometimes I've used uh, Nietzsche uh, in a way to help me exert the will not to stay in despondency, despite emotional feeling, maintain a deep determination to hope. Right. You know, I think if we use our will in some fashion, it is this, to hope, to hold on to the promises of God, uh, even when all seems dark and hopeless to us, when we can't see why he's led us on the path that he has, why we bear the scars that we do. Uh, not every scar uh, is self-imposed. 
uh, and uh, sometimes we uh, bear deep ones and we can begin to wonder, well, how is it that God could act through such a thing in my life? And uh, again, the saints become for us that source of hope. That, that quote from Augustine that we've often brought up, you know, in my deepest wound, I, I gazed upon you and I was dazzled. I saw your glory and I was, I was dazzled. That in his greatest affliction, what was most, you know, what he saw as his deepest wound is where he also saw the action of God's grace in the most powerful way in the depth of his love. And I found that to be true for most people that this encounter of God in the very place they hate the most uh, is where, you know, is, is something that then become, uh, becomes etched upon the mind and the heart, you know, that they see his love there so clearly. But it's not dependent upon what the world tells us, you know, that we have this kind of perfection physically, intellectually, socially, no. for all introverts, it gives enormous hope <laughs> for all those paralyzed by their fear of social experiences. I sort of have to whip myself up for these groups, have this memory of my dad chasing me out the front door to go to school. Come on, get out there. Uh, Cindy writes, I read that EWTN has a new series on the Desert Fathers starting August 20th. Yes, not a series. Uh, it's a documentary. Uh, but yes, that's coming up very soon. I look forward to seeing it some myself. Okay, uh, where do we leave off here? Number 20. It may happen that continuous meditation on passages of the Psalms is prolonged into the hour of sleep. And it may happen that the demons put these passages into our mind in order to lead us to pride. I would not have mentioned the third case had not someone forced me to do so. The soul which has spent all day unceasingly engaged in the word of the Lord will love to be preoccupied with it in sleep too. For this second, grace is, in a special sense, a reward for the first and helps us to avoid falls and fantasies. This is the 20th step. He who has mounted it has received light in his heart. So an interesting thing. Uh, so it may happen that we prolong the praying of the Psalms late into the night, uh, that we are inspired to do so. It may happen that the, the demons put these passages in our mind in order to lead us to pride, to over-identify at times. And sometimes we'll do this with the writings of the saints or the scriptures as a whole. We'll read it aggressively, seeing others in it. This perfectly describes so-and-so, or this perfectly describes what I'm going through. Oh, Lord, remember David and all the many hardships he has endured. Uh, having the name David uh, often presents the Psalms as a kind of temptation uh, to me over the course of the years, especially that particular Psalm, because it comes up in the Latin Rite office so often. Uh, and so I hear myself praying that, 
over and over again. And uh, it's hard not to go there, it's, you know, especially if you're going through a hard time to, to, to personalize that. And, you know, there are some good ways we, where we can be consoled by that. But there are ways that the demons can lead us to pride. Oh, look, I'm like David, or this, or this psalm is speaking about me. And it may very well be, and it might be given to us as a consolation, but the demons could try to use it to, to stir up pride within us. The soul that has spent all day unceasingly engaged in the word of God will love to be occupied with it and sleep too. And so he mentions this third one, uh, because it's a special grace that one can carry, you know, what we carry within our minds and our hearts, what speaks to our minds and hearts and moves them the most throughout the course of the day will also follow us into sleep. And so if God permeates our consciousness and if we open our hearts to him and his word so radically that it permeates our entire being, our unconscious then it's going to be manifest even within our dreams as well, that what will emerge from the depths of the heart will be the word of, word of God. And so Christ speaks of this in some ways, out of the depths of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, you know, if the heart has been formed and shaped by the love of God and by his word, then what, what's going to come out of the mouth is going to be reflective of that reality. Whereas if what has been in our hearts has been pride, selfishness, you know, anger, then often our speech is going to be re reflective of that reality too. So that brings us to the end of step 20. Uh, I thought we might pass on to 21, but it's already 835. These hours pass by so quickly. Uh, so much there that is valuable. Uh, it's interesting that it's a step on sleep, but it really speaks to so many aspects of the spiritual life and spiritual battle that it is truly worth going over and over again. Okay? So we'll stop there for the, the evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, in heaven hallowed be thy, be thy name. name. Thy kingdom, thy kingdom come. come. Thy Amen. will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.